The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started, because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Welcome to No Excuses with John Taffer. This is our second podcast episode. You can follow me on at John Taffer on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or email me at podcast at johntaffer.com. And later in this episode, I have Adam Carolla as my guest. Adam is in a Guinness Book of World's Records as the most podcast downloads in history. And you know him from a lot of TV shows, Crank Yankers, a couple of shows he did on my network. Uh, he was actually a guest on Bar Rescue. So Adam will be with us later. But I must tell you, I am actually in my office in Las Vegas. And I don't talk about this often, but I just finished my 169th episode of Bar Rescue. We wrapped up season six. And uh, we have a bunch of episodes in the can, so we're not going to be shooting for a little while. And I said goodbye to a crew just the other night in uh, uh, San Antonio, Texas. And what's interesting about Bar Rescue is it takes four days to shoot an episode. It really takes my crew six days because they have to load all the equipment in before I get there, load everything out after I leave. And after uh, – Six seasons and 169 episodes of Bar Rescue, we were doing the math. I've been in hotel rooms over a thousand nights. Uh, uh, um, When you think about that, I've been uh, around my crew for about 900 shoot days. And it's an amazing amount of travel to shoot Bar Rescue. And I love the show, but I must tell you, I hate to travel. And when we did Bar Rescue this season, we did 10 the last run. So we do three episodes, take a week off, three episodes, take a week off, then four episodes in the end. And that fourth episode is brutal. So I want you all to remind me, Taffer, don't do the fourth episode in a row anymore. It's, it's really, we're all falling asleep, the entire crew and myself. But this was, this was a heavy Bar Rescue this week. Uh, James uh, uh, was the son who, who, who these parents were counting on. They lost a quarter of a million dollars. Their retirement's on the line. And this kid was a complete jerk who thought it was cool to say no and not do things and not participate. Sometimes you got to beat the hell out of somebody to make them look at themselves. And then sometimes you almost have to overpraise them to build them back up again. And that's what I did with James. Uh, uh, The feedback I've gotten since the episode is pretty good. I hear the revenues are up. I hear he's still running out. I hear he's dressing better. You know, I think when people understand the consequences of their actions, it makes a big difference. Don't you think? For example, there are bar rescue episodes where I've held up glasses and I've said to people that drink too much, when you look in that glass, I want you to see the, a picture of your son. And I'm told years later that he still sees that picture of his son and it still impacts his drinking. So sometimes we need to understand the consequence of our actions. If we don't feel bad for our, our own consequences, maybe we feel bad for somebody else's. And that's what I think happened in this week's bar rescue. I think James started to feel bad for the consequences he was putting on his parents. He didn't mind being a loser himself, but it did bother him when he realized that he was screwing his parents. And that's what I think the story of Bar Rescue was uh, this week, was a a young, spoiled kid realizing that his consequences were going to destroy his parents' life. And that's a pretty powerful Bar Rescue episode. 
Talking about Bar Rescue, now that I'm wrapped for the entire summer, I'm actually sitting in my office here. I haven't been here in weeks. Imagine running a company like mine and never getting to see your employees, never getting to sit in your office, never getting to flip through your own papers. When you travel 40 weeks a year, it's very, very difficult to run your company and do the things that you do when you're here. Bar Rescue's a, a, a schedule is something I don't talk about often, and I thought I'd share it with everybody, give you a little of the inside information. Bar Rescue takes four days to shoot. The first day I tend to arrive on set about four in the afternoon. When I show up, I get about a one-minute briefing. John, here's who owns the bar. Uh, uh, they're this much in debt. They're losing this amount of month. They're going to run out of money uh, uh, in this amount of time. This is the mother, the father, the daughter, et cetera. I literally get about a one or a two minute briefing. Then I'm put in the SUV and I'm sent in to do recon. And I sit in the SUV for a while. I go in when I want to. Once I walk in, I do whatever I want to do. Of course, nothing is planned, scripted. There's no actors. There's no scripts. There's none of those things. At the end of recon on the first night, here's what people don't know. At the end of recon, when the cameras stop and every and the bar is empty, we take all the employees and the owners and we put them in white vans in the parking lot. And I go in that night off camera and I design the bar that night after recon. So I've got about 20 minutes. I got to come up with a concept, a brand. I look at the demographics. Most people can take months to do a design, pass papers back and forth, ideas back and forth. I got about 20 minutes. So I got to come up with a design. And what do I use? The vertical aspects of the room, the horizontal aspects of the room, where are windows, where are doors, where's the bar? I have to deal with a lot of the physical elements that already exist. By the end of that first night, I've got to come up with a design concept and direction. The next morning we come back and that's stress test day. So on camera, we're training all day long. I'm doing staff meetings. We're doing stress tests that night. We're doing staff meetings after stress test possibly. And off camera, I am signing off on everything that you see on television. I sign off on every bar stool, every paint color, every piece of wallpaper, all the design elements, the bar setups, everything I sign off on I'm involved in. By the end of the second day, when stress test ends, we have to be ready. The recipes must be finished because the menus have to go to the printer. The logo must be done because the signage has to be created. So by the end of the second day, that concept is pretty much done. Name is done. Logo is done. And we're in development mode. We come back the third day for training in another location. And the reason why it's in another location is after stress tests, we start remodeling. So day three at another location, I'll typically sit down with the owners. We'll do our training, uh, et cetera. And uh, we'll build the bar in 36 hours, just like you see on television. At the end of that 36-hour period, now it's day four at about three or four in the afternoon. And uh, uh, a white van pulls up with all the employees and owners sitting in the back with blindfolds on. They line them up in front of the bar. We do the reveal. And I leave that bar at about 10, 30, 11 o'clock on the fourth day. And then we're off for two days and we do it all over again. So day one is day one on Bar Rescue. Day two is day two. Day three is day three. Day four is day four. It's really a, a very fair and honest look at the four days that happens during a bar rescue. You know, when I tell this, I tell this to you because how many of you take months to design and develop and do things? I know when I deal with my clients, chain restaurants and chain hotel companies, it takes them months, months to develop new menu items and do things that I do in hours. Sometimes I'm not sure we realize how much money is impacted by time. And you know, if we can do things a month quicker, that's a huge impact on our lives. And uh, uh, 
I think that James, had he reacted quicker in bar rescue, could have saved that bar before his parents lost $250,000. So I'm sitting here in my office and I'm looking at the newspapers today and I was watching television and I couldn't help but see Roseanne Barr's clip, her apology clip that was in the news today. And I want to talk about that for a minute. So let's give a listen. I didn't mean what they think I meant. And that's what's so painful. But I have to face that uh, this hurt people. I horribly regret that. Are you kidding? I've lost everything. And I regretted it before I lost everything. And I said to God, I am willing to accept whatever consequences this brings because I know I've done wrong. I'm willing to accept what the consequences are, and I do, and I have. That upset me to hear that. You know, I, I think of somebody like Roseanne. Look, I know how hard it is to get on television. I know how much harder it is to stay on television. A lot more people get on TV than stay on TV. I've been on TV almost eight years. I understand how hard it is. And, you know, I, I look at a Kathy Griffin who held up Trump's bloody head. I look at other comedians that have said incredibly offensive things to people. And, and, uh, and I've seen apologies that are a lot less sincere. Do you think this is fair? Roseanne said something stupid. It was clearly offensive. I haven't heard an apology as sincere as that, I don't believe. She's already lost her show. She's already lost everything. She's not going to gain anything by doing this apology. Where do we as a society forgive people and not forgive people? Now, I think when we take action, it's unforgivable. Words happen by mistake. Actions rarely happen by mistake. Actions can happen from ignorance, but rarely by mistake. Where do we draw the line? You know, is that restaurant operator who threw the press secretary out, isn't that offensive? Wasn't that offensive to a number of people? They're a hero. So where do we draw the line? And, you know, I look at what's happening to Roseanne, and I'm not a huge Roseanne Barr fan, don't get me wrong, and, and I'm not supporting her political position. I'm just supporting a, a question about humanity. When do we forgive somebody for making a verbal mistake who apologizes sincerely and is prepared to do whatever it takes to make it right? Isn't that a society what we're supposed to do? Help people apologize, help people grow, help people understand their shortcomings, help people get ahead. So as an end result, Roseanne's show is now going to air called The Connors without her. My guess is it won't succeed. Because the whole dynamic and interactivity of the show is going to change. I'm guessing they'll have her die or something in the script to justify her non-existence. But when we look at hi historically past television shows that have done this have not succeeded. So in all probability, 200 crew people are going to lose their job. Sponsors are going to lose sponsorship opportunities. Agencies are going to lose sales opportunities. Creative houses are going to lose the opportunities to do commercials and things for the store. And hundreds and hundreds of people are going to lose their jobs. And this is going to affect their futures. How many people should suffer the consequences of somebody's bad choice of words? I think as a society, we really, really need to think about this. And what is the point of an apology even existing if I can't say something stupid and ask for your forgiveness after I say it? Then what is the point of an apology?
I think we need to go back to apologies, and I think we need to start listening to apologies a little more. Again, I'm not suggesting Roseanne go back on TV tomorrow, but I'm suggesting that she should not be destroyed to this level for choosing bad words when other people have chosen bad actions and had far less consequence. Anyway, speaking of consequence, has anybody checked out Heather Locklear? Was arrested again after kicking a cop and an EMT following two 9-11 calls from an extremely intoxicated Heather from her home. And boy, go on the pictures. This is not a happy or a, a, a well-packaged Heather in this picture here. It's really a very, very sad story. It, it's, it's terrible to see people like this go down. You know, one thing I learned as a celebrity... Before I was a celebrity, I used to look at other celebrities and say, ah, lucky guy, lucky guy, lucky guy. Now I realize, boy, it is so hard to do this. The cities, the mileage, the interviews, the hotel rooms. You've got to work so hard to be successful in this business. That Now I have a new appreciation for celebrities and, and those in show business. Becoming a household name is not freaking easy. And it pays a price. And I hate to see people like Heather and people like Roseanne, uh, 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 suffering this kind of a way. I wish again there were more apologies and ways that we could we could improve each other's lives rather than uh, destroying each other's lives and those around us. Anyway, for this week, I'm pretty excited to have Adam Carolla with me. Adam is not only a podcast king to me, but Adam is really a, a, a fascinating because I've watched him grow in TV. His relationship with Kimmel. You know, he started as a carpenter, evolved into this business, and he really uh, 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 has some profound experiences that I wanted to make sure he shared with you. So I wanted to interview Adam in a way that he hasn't been interviewed before. We'll be right back with Adam. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. You want to know what I think? Here it is. Here's Taffer's take. My take on business is simple. Those who say it can't be done should get the hell out of the way and shut up so those who can get it done can go to work. Let's do it. No excuses. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. Welcome back to No Excuses. Honestly, my favorite two parts of the show are when I get to interview somebody who I want to learn from and when I get to do my audience phone calls. So we're going to start with an interview, and then after that, we're going to go over to my audience phone calls. And this week, I'm really excited to have Adam Carolla with me. Adam is not only in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most downloaded podcast in history, but his TV background, his writing background. There is a, a unique set of experiences that Adam has had that I really want to talk about today because I think we can all learn from Adam. Hey, buddy. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's great for you to be here. Thanks, buddy, for being here. Were you funny when you were in high school? Yeah, I was. I was uh, I was a jock, which was weird, but I was funny. I, I also uh, got class clown of uh, North Hollywood High in 1982, but there was nothing to do with it. It was just, you're funny, great, now go onto a construction site and pick up garbage. That was kind of the way the world treated me. So what did you hope to do when you got out of, out of college? Did you hope to be in a business like this? Did you ever think that this would happen to you? Well, I didn't go to college. Uh, I didn't have the money or the or the grades or 
the essay. I never took the SATs or algebra class or anything. I just kind of, I just kind of got through high school. I had actually saw my records the other day. For some reason, I was uh, out of my graduating class at North Hollywood High. I was four ninety-seven out of five fifty-five. So I was, I was about five hundred out of five fifty. Wow, you and I shared this. I actually left high school in the middle of my senior year to pursue music. My parents let me do it. And then years later, I wanted to go to college, so I had to take a GED uh, to go to college for a couple of years. So so, uh, you were really then, you went into construction. When did this happen, and how did this happen for you? What is the first thing that you ever did in show business? Well, I went into construction. You know, I I shouldn't say I went into construction. I I got a phone call from a friend of mine when I was about eighteen or nineteen, and I was living in my dad's garage in North Hollywood. And he just said they need some help on this job site. And I just went up to Silver Lake and pulled ivy off the side of a house on a hill for nine hours, and they paid me seven bucks an hour. And they said, you know, you work hard, come back tomorrow. And then I came back and dug ditches. And that was about it. And eventually I figured out, my boss told me, if you get a pickup truck, I was riding a motorcycle, pickup truck, you'll get another dollar an hour. And so I found an old used pickup truck, and that's what I drove. And I got another dollar an hour, and I I figured out if I bought some tools, and maybe learn how to use them, I could get 10 bucks an hour, become a carpenter. Either way, I wouldn't have to dig ditches all day, literally. So I I figured it out. And uh, at some point, I, I became a carpenter. And at some point, I kind of realized that I, I'm a car guy. And I couldn't afford anything but a pickup truck. I couldn't afford to have a Datsun Z car or Camaro or trans am or anything and just something just something like loving cars and knowing that you're 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 basically handcuffed to drive this pickup truck for the rest of your life and you can't afford insurance on a second car and you're going to live in an apartment and you got to park your sports car out on the street so it can get broken into just that alone made me think you know i gotta do i gotta do something else so i just started thinking about comedy and I thought I could do it. And I started working on it and working on it. I spent years working on it. And uh, at some point, I met Jimmy Kimmel because I was also a part-time boxing coach. And he was doing a boxing match because he worked for K-Rock Radio. And they were doing a morning show stunt. He was the morning, he was the sports guy on the local radio station. That was your, your transition into it. So what was the first cool car that you were really proud of? Um, God, I I got a BMW M3 at a certain point because it was funny. I got this Maxima, and I was driving around, you know, doing TV shows and showing up. I remember pulling up to the Playboy Mansion in this Maxima, and, like, the producers of this show were having a party up there when what the hell are you driving a Nissan for? And to me, I was like, are you kidding? This is a sweet ride. And they were like, why, why aren't you driving a BMW or Mercedes? Uh, I got a BMW 
M3. That was that was probably my first cool car. Mine was a 69 AMX. Remember that car? Limited oh. production two-seat? Sure, yeah. I, I raced with some of those guys in Trans Am. There's a couple of AMC cars out there in uh, the vintage Trans Am world. And uh, the AMX are probably the only cool thing uh, American Motors ever made. I, I agree. I agree. Do you take driving trips? Is that something you do in your free time? Will you drive up the coast and things like that? Uh, I do more like put the car in the trailer, take it to up the coast to Laguna Seca to the racetrack and, and race it. I will take a road trip. Yeah, I will. I, I, we will tow the car. I will drive up there, but I'll also drive at the track. I loved your book in 50 Years Will All Be Chicks. I know I'm going back a few years, but I love that freaking book. So what year did you write it? Your uh, listeners should probably have to Google it, but it's probably about, it's got to be at least eight, nine years old. I mean, it's probably, you know, probably like 09, uh, 2010, something something like that. So let's assume that, that we're 20% of the way there of the 50 years that we're at year 10. You, you think your prediction is on track? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's funny. I do get some tweets like, Guys wearing culottes and dogs at the airport, with you know guys carrying around bills at the airport and stuff. And people tweet me all the time, like, "Oh, it's happening a lot faster than it." It is weird. I I I named the book that for a reason. It was it was the first comedy book I'd ever written. The publisher said, "Call it whatever you want," and. That's just what I felt like calling because I was feeling what was going on in the in the zeitgeist, and and I, I was tapping into something. And as it turns out, yeah, it is kind of that way. Like I, I it, there, it, it took a lot less than fifty years to get there. What is Taco Bell material? I know what isn't. <laughs> what is? Yeah, and evidently anybody who fills out a uh, application except for me. I was my next book. <laughs> actually, my next book I was either President Me or Not Taco Bell. But no, the next book was Not Taco Bell Material, which is just an autobiographical story, uh, my life essentially. And I decided to call it Not Taco Bell Material because I applied for a job at the Taco Bell in North Hollywood across the street from. Uh, my high school when I was in the 10th grade and they did not accept my application. And it always, it always, it left a psychological scar because I remember thinking, <laughs> this is Taco Bell. If you guys will hire anybody and I'm, you know, white and able-bodied and live around the corner and I got a strong back and a good attitude and I'm, I'm you know, I'm ready to go. Uh, and the fact that they wouldn't hire me always left a mark. <laughs> why, why do you think they didn't? You know, uh, I <laughs> could not read or write very well at all. And just by my penmanship and my spelling, you'd think this guy's either an imbecile or a serial killer or both. That's when you went from penmanship to language. And talking it, and yeah, <laughs> it worked out much better. I, 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 honestly, I'm no more reading, no more writing. I'm just going to talk. <laughs> so, 
out of all the things that you do, you're going to smile. I freaking love Crank Yankers. I thought that show was oh, freaking hysterical. Who thought of it? It was funny. Ever since Jimmy and I have known each other, Jimmy has loved prank phone calls. Oh, he loves pranks. Um, it's funny. We both have a sense of humor, but I don't love pranks as much as Jimmy loves pranks. Jimmy, I like them, but he loves them. And he always loved prank phone calls. And at some yeah, point, we decided... Well, there's got to be a way to make a TV show about prank phone calls. But then we've kind of realized, how would it work? Like, how would you act it out? How would you recreate it? And would you make it animated? Or would you make it, we, we even talked about making it like claymated, like with stop motion clay stuff. And at a certain point, we just figured it should be puppa-mated. And, and so we had, we made actual crank calls with, with puppets. You know, when I was in high school, we called them phony phone calls. And, and we used right. to do them to each other's parents all the time. And, and, and <laughs> it was one kid's parents in my high school who we just would constantly nail them with phony phone calls. And, and <laughs> oh, we got caught one time. Boy, I was, we got in a lot of trouble. But I was a master at it. I love pranks. I love catching people by surprise. I think it's hysterical. So I got a chance to see the racing life of Paul Newman. You shared that video with me a couple years ago. And, man, I've never seen anything that was such a labor of love as that film that you made. And what I'm talking about is animated documentary about Paul Newman called Winning the Racing Life of Paul Newman. Uh, and, uh, you know, buddy, that was an incredible video. He was something else. How long did it take you to make that? That was really a labor of love for you, wasn't it? I have uh, a lot of Newman race cars. Um, I own 10 of his race cars now. I've raced them. I've always heard the stories. Uh, I've, I've talked to, used to talk to his ex, uh, partner, team owner, Bob Sharp. It was always Newman Sharp. So my cars say Newman Sharp on them. And, uh, at some point I, I got a book and I, and I just thought, is such an interesting story. I, I can't believe that most people don't know this story. I, I also used to get a lot of people asking me about my cars, and I would say, well, I have Newman race cars, and they would say, did he race on the celebrity circuit? And I would say, what's the celebrity circuit? <laughs> and I, I said to him, no, it was just a race. He was a racer. He loved racing. He raced for the whole second half of his life. And at a certain point, I just realized, well, I, I, I need to make this documentary because I don't think people understand Paul Newman and, and, and his relationship with racing. Last question, buddy, then I'm going to let you go. What is your worst show sure. business night ever? Was there a night when you said to yourself, what am I freaking doing, man? In, uh, yeah, in comedy? Yeah, at a certain point, when I was about 20, oh God, I must have been 26 or 27, and I, it, I'd been at comedy for about five years, and it just, it wasn't working, and I decided I needed like a change of venue or something. I needed to go to some town and do comedy and live there, and I, uh, a room opened up in Oakland, California, a friend of mine was 
in a house with like three guys and one of the rooms opened up and I packed up my pickup truck and I was going to go to Oakland and I was going to start doing comedy as a, you know, as a regular at Obama. And, and there was a club outside of uh, San Francisco called Rooster Tea Feathers. And somehow somebody knew somebody there and they got me an audition on a Thursday night. And I, I drove out there and, and I just bombed for 10 minutes and, and it was just bad. And, you know, she didn't want to hire me. And I remember just driving back to the Bay area and, and it was raining and I was driving my pickup truck and I was literally going over like the golden gate bridge or the Oakland bridge or the Bay bridge or whatever it was. And I really was contemplating just driving off of the bridge. Like I just thought, it, it can't get any worse than this. You'll you're never mount to anything. You're going to go back to L.A. You're going to pick up a shovel and you're just going to die on some construction site. And that, that was about the bottom for me. But you didn't. You kept going, didn't you? I think by virtue of the fact that we're having this conversation today and I'm sitting in my Jaguar and I'm pulling <laughs> up to my shop filled with Paul Newman race cars. I would say it's a safe bet to say I didn't, John. Yeah, I'm with you, buddy. Neither did I when somebody said you, you'll never freaking be on television, Taffy. You're too old. You're not good enough, looking enough. It'll never happen. You know, there's a lesson here. You know, and, you, and you've actually, to be serious for a minute, buddy, you, you've been a great example to so many of us. You know, the, the, you're shifting from industry to industry. Your success, the fact that, that you're so authentic to yourself, Adam. That, you know, people should remember that you didn't become Adam Carolla overnight. And I certainly didn't become well-known overnight. This is hard, man. And you think of all the gigs and all the hours. So anybody who's having a night like you did that night should remember we've all had them. And it, oh, yeah. it's how we lick our wounds and stand up and go at it the next day that matters, man. You agree? There is no choice. It's not like there's another way to do it. There's one way to do it. Get back up and go at it the next day. Yeah. And the great thing about it is is uh, uh, the next projects are even better or even more exciting. Anything you want to talk about that's coming up? No, I got a new doc coming out, another really good doc called Uppity, and you can go to chassis, C-H-A-S-S-Y.com and pre-order that, and you can just listen to me at, uh, at adamcarolla.com and listen to a free podcast. I've been listening to you for years, Adam. Thanks for being here, buddy. It was a pleasure. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. You know, before I was in show business, I would look at famous people and I'd always think, hey, guys are really lucky, guys lucky, guys lucky, guys lucky. But, you know, it, it, it's really hard to become well-known. It's really hard to be in this business. It's one thing to start a podcast. It's another thing to keep one. It's one thing to get on television. It's another thing to stay on television. It's another thing to be a celebrity who comes and goes. It's another thing to, to, to be long-lasting. You know, and what I've learned now being in the limelight is how hard it is to get here and that people like Adam Carolla aren't lucky. They worked really hard. And you think of his worst night and, and probably in tears crossing that bridge after he failed, that there's a lesson in this for all of us that, you know, the worst night is exactly that. It's the worst night. It doesn't get any worse than that. But we always have to seek what it is that elevates us. Adam has been elevating himself his whole life and now he's a household name and, and Developing that success never comes easy. So don't expect it to come easy. Expect some hard work. But man, the payoff is great when it happens. And there's Adam in his Jaguar pulling up to his studio 
filled with uh, Paul Newman race cars from the worst night of his life to that. That could be you. Thanks, Adam. Uh, now go off and break another Guinness record. <laughs> it was great to have you, buddy. Now is my favorite part of the show. This is when I get to talk to you, audience phone calls. So, who do we got, KC? John, we've got uh, Stephen from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Stephen, you are on with John Taffer. Stephen from Milwaukee. How are you, buddy? How's it going, John? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah, what do you got for me, brother? Um, So, I was listening to your interview on Adam Carolla's show, and you mentioned that you travel uh, roughly 40 weeks a year, yeah. and... I'm seven weeks into a new role that involves traveling probably three to four days a week around most of the Midwest. And I was wondering if you have different tips on how to manage my time more productively. Yeah. So, so are you driving or are you flying when you travel? Uh, mostly driving, flying very rarely. You're getting a lot of time in your car, man. First of all, make all your phone calls while you're driving. That's, that's the first thing I would recommend. Really make your car time productive if you're in the car for hours a day. It's very easy to switch the radio on and phase out of work when you're driving uh, uh, and just respond to calls that are coming in. I've always thought that, that if I could get my phone work done in the morning while I was in my car, that then you know the rest of the day I could focus on growing business. Are you in sales or what do you do? Yep, it's sales. You know, it, in the sales business, you want to split your time, and you're going to remember this. This is going to be powerful for you. You know, about 70 to 80% of your time you should work in the business, and about 20 to 30% of your time you should work on the business. So selling is, you know, fulfilling orders, taking care of your clients, making your sales calls, doing all those kind of things. But if you can take care of your phone calls and things like that from your car, work in your business the first part of the day. You can work on your business the second part of the day, and you can be far more successful than anyone else. When I was younger, I got promoted 11 times in five years, Stephen, and, and I did it all because I had this ability to raise sales. And if you're in a sales business, if you can raise sales statistically more than the other people with other territories around you, you're going to get a bigger territory. You know that. You're going to get key accounts. You're going to get all sorts of opportunity to grow. So you're going to be graded on your ability to grow sales. Right, Steve? So all right. you've got to figure out a way to work in it to make sure every client you have is ordering everything they should. And then you've got to figure out a way to work on it to make certain that you get more clients and more growth out of it. And if you think about it consciously and use that car time to work in it and your other time to work on it, I think you can be far more successful. One other thing I learned on the road, two things. One is your physical self. It's really easy to sit in a car all day, sit on your bed, you know, watch television. Somehow we got to hit a gym. We got to stay physical when we're on the road. We got to take walks around the hotel. It's very easy to fall into a completely unphysical rut when you're traveling. You know what I mean? So that's important. Oh, yeah. So, so walk and, and do the things you need to to stay physical. And, and then the third element really of, of travel is food. I mean, boy, man, you can gain weight, you can lose weight. It's hard to stay on healthy diets. So you really got to focus on lifestyle and working on your business when you're on the road. And if you can allocate the time to take care of yourself and work on it, then working in it will become a lot easier for you. Make sense? That makes complete sense. And good luck, buddy. Go break some sales records, okay? <laughs> That's the plan. Steven, I'm sending you to shut it down, buddy. Whenever things get down, hit that button, and we'll shut it down together. Who's next, Casey? John, let's go to Clayton from Athens, Georgia. Clayton, how are you, buddy? 
Hey, Mr. Stafford, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. You're out in Atlanta, huh? Well, I'm over in uh, Athens, Georgia, so it's about an hour drive from Atlanta. And how can I help you, buddy? I emailed you recently just with a couple questions after listening to your podcast Monday. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I'm going into my senior year at the University of Georgia, and while I'm excited about the opportunities ahead, I constantly find myself second-guessing my next move. Uh, to put my problem into simpler terms, uh, I want to do so much after college, and I really can't pick one thing to jump in for my career. First of all, maybe you got to take a deep breath, buddy. I'm reading your questions. So you're a perfectionist, right? At this point, you're worried about finding the right job when you get out of college. So you're working hard, right? You're doing well in school. What is the Absolutely. right job? I imagine it's something that I find fulfilling, you know, something I can be proud of at the end of the day. So you don't even know what the right job is right now, if I asked you. John Lennon once said, the Beatle once said, life is what happens when you make other plans. You asked me about, you know, changing from a drummer to a businessman and then moving from the hospitality industry into the TV industry. And, buddy, none of it was planned. And sometimes I think that, that reality TV taught me something. And, and in reality television, if I walk into your bar to shoot a bar rescue, and I predetermine who and what you are and what's going to happen. It's not real. But if I go in and follow the reality, then it leads us to wonderful places. So here's my point to you. You have to just focus on what you're doing now. Meet the people you need to meet. Have an open mind to different industries and different things. And you will find that right landing point. The other point I want to make to you, buddy, is wherever you land out of school is probably not where you're going to be five years later. Absolutely, Mr. Taffer. Um and you mentioned in your podcast Monday that you constantly left your comfort zone to try these different things that were completely uh, new to you. Uh, what, what kind of emotions were running through your head? Um, and what were you kind of feeling to know that that was the right move to move on to something different? Think about your first day of college, right? You go to college, you know, you're, you're in a the big classroom building. There's all these strange people around you. And you're going to your first class. That was pretty exciting, wasn't it? Absolutely. So... To me, it's, it's terminology. It isn't that I'm leaving my comfort zone. It's that I'm growing. And every time we leave our comfort zone, we, we grow, Clayton. That's how we meet new people and get exposed to new things. If you stay in your comfort zone, buddy, you're screwed. Comfort zone is too negative. It makes it feel like if you step out of it, it's a bad thing. Stepping into opportunity isn't a bad thing, right? No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, let's shut that comfort zone shit down, buddy. That uh, uh, doesn't serve as well. You're a smart guy, I can tell. Go see stuff, learn stuff, step out of that comfort zone. That's where you'll really find new opportunities. And you might wind up doing something you never, ever thought you would do. If you said to me 10 years ago, Taffer, you're going to be on television, I would have told you, you're nuts, man. I never even conceived such a thing in my life. So don't step out of your comfort zone. Step in to your next opportunity, okay, your next growth. All right, buddy? Absolutely. You've given me a lot to think about, Mr. Taffer. Thank you so much. You're welcome. By the way, Clayton, you were my very first call ever from an audience. So if you stand by a second, I'm going to send you a shut it down button, okay, buddy? Push it and I'll scream shut Absolutely. it down. Anytime you worry about anything, I want you to push that button, okay? Okay, I will. All right, buddy. Take care. Well, there we have it. My second podcast episode was starting to slip into a format here. We're going to start each podcast talking, updating, just sort of talking about things that I'd like to talk about with you. We're going to then go into interviews every week, and they're going to finish up with your calls. I love audience calls. I never know what's coming, and that's what makes them great. Well, that's our second episode. 
please reach out to me at John Taffer on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or you can email me at podcast at johntaffer.com. Don't forget, subscribe to my podcast now at Podcast One, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. 